You're listening to the Plain Label Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Plain Label Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Williams. And in this episode, we conclude our discussion on writer-director Darren Aronofsky with a look at the films Pie and Mother. Here to discuss these films with me is returning guest, Mr. Will Pfeiffer. Hello. Before getting into our discussion, I would like to mention that this podcast is brought to you by the Deliberate Noise Network. Head over to deliberatenoise.com and check out some of the other shows that are over there. And we are also sponsored by Audible. For you, the listeners of Plain Label Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check them out. For this episode, our Audible recommendation is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life by Mark Manson. This Audiobook is five hours long. It retails for about $16 or so, but it could be yours today for free. And Harper Collins says about this book, In this generation-defining self-help guide, a superstar blogger cuts through the crap to show us how to stop trying to be positive all the time so we can truly become better, happier people. For decades, we've been told that positive thinking is the key to a rich, happy life. Fuck positivity, Mark Manson says. Let's be honest, shit is fucked, and we have to live with it. In his wildly popular internet blog, Manson doesn't sugarcoat or equivocate. He tells it like it is, a dose of raw, refreshing, honest truth that is sorely lacking. The subtle art of not giving a fuck is his antidote to the coddling, let's all feel good mindset that has infected modern society and spoiled a generation, rewarding them with gold medals just for showing up. Manson makes the argument backed by both academic research and well-timed poop jokes, that improving our lives hinges not on our ability to turn lemons into lemonade, but on learning to stomach lemons better. Human beings are flawed and limited. Not everybody can be extraordinary. There are winners and losers in society, and some of it is not fair or your fault. Manson advises us to get to know our limitations and accept them. Once we embrace our fears, faults, and uncertainties, once we stop running and avoiding and start confronting painful truths, we we can begin to find the courage, perseverance, honesty, responsibility, curiosity, and forgiveness we seek. There are only so many things we can give a fuck about, so we need to figure out which ones really matter. Manson makes clear. While money is nice, caring about what you do with your life is better because true wealth is about experience. A much-needed grab-you-by-the-shoulders-and-look-you-in-the-eye moment of real talk filled with entertaining stories and profane, ruthless humor. The the subtle art of not giving a fuck is a refreshing slap for a generation to help them lead contented, grounded lives. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash plainlabel. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash plainlabel for your free audiobook. Okay, and we'll get into why that is relevant for <laughs> definitely one of the films, maybe. <clears throat> um, but before we get into that, are you having coffee? Are you having ginger ale? What are you having to drink for me this eve, Mr. Pizer? You know what I'm, I'm having because I was at all day at a company picnic in Iowa, so I had to drive all the way over to Iowa, which is about two hours, drive back, set up the picnic, do all this stuff. And I am, I'm tired. I'm tired but ready to talk. But <laughs> right now I'm drinking a Bubbler, which is B-U- BBL apostrophe R antioxidant sparkling water that claims to boost energy and restore balance with natural caffeine. Ooh. That's what I'm having right now. All right. A little natural caffeine. That'll keep you wired in case you feel like writing when we're done or something like that, right? Uh, I am going with 
It is similar to the bubbler. It is uh, some LaCroix. Uh-huh. And it is lime LaCroix with a little bit of Svedka vodka. It is the traditional, <laughs> it is nice. the traditional Rachel Zlag drink that we have. Um, and my wife and I just say, you know, pour me a Rachel. And that's what that means is right. Svedka vodka and water. Okay. So with that, let's uh, kick off our discussion. We're going to start with the 1998 film pie. Twelve forty-five. Restate my assumptions. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. Three, if you graph the numbers of any system, patterns emerge. Therefore, there are patterns everywhere in nature. You ever hear of Kabbalah? Jewish mysticism. Insomnia haunts him and he twists and turns in his bed. Maybe that pattern is like the pattern in the stock market. The Torah. This 216 number. This is insanity, Max. Or maybe it's genius. I have to get that number. Hold on, you have to slow down. You're losing it. You only gave us part of the code. Now give us the rest of the code so we can set it right. You are only a vessel from our God. You are carrying a delivery that was meant for us. There will be no order, only chaos. IMDb plot synopsis goes like this. Max is a genius mathematician who's built a supercomputer at home that provides something that he can that can be understood as a key for understanding all existence. Representatives from both a Hasidic Kabbalah sect and a high-powered Wall Street firm hear of that secret and attempt to seduce him. Okay, so, Will, why don't you start out? This is uh, Darren Aronofsky's first film. Mm-hmm. It is from 1998, like I mentioned. Why don't you tell me about when you sort of first became aware of the film? Did you see this one first, or or what's your sort of general history with Aronofsky when it comes to this film? You know, I did see this one first. In fact, I saw it in the theater with my wife. Before she was my wife, this was a few years before we got married, and... um. There used to be kind of a theater in Rockford that was dedicated sort of to showing some of the more artsy releases. And uh, I think I saw a commercial for this, or maybe I read about it on whatever the vision of the Internet was back in 1998. But <laughs> yes. uh, it's it sounded like, I mean, I, I must have seen a trailer or something because I'm sure that's what grabbed me, the, the visuals of it, those black and white visuals. So we went to see it, and I remember coming out thinking like, you know, wow, that was really something. I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's very much much sort of a first film where Aronofsky is like sort of throwing, you know, every idea and every visual, you know, concept at the screen and, and seeing what sticks. But I, I, I remember really loving the energy, loving the look of it, loving it's very stark, high contrast black and white throughout. And it's, it's very sort of focused and it really, it really takes you. You know, it's it's a it's a real movie that that takes you right into the head of Max Cohen, the main character. I mean, the whole movie you sort of see through his eyes, and as he becomes more and more insane or mm-hmm. 
revelatory. What, but you you see it through him, and uh, I liked it a lot. I mean, it was the kind of movie when it was over, I was thinking, you know, I made a note of who this guy Darren Aronofsky was, and I'm like, well, I want to see what he does next. Mm-hmm. And so did you have the same feelings when you watched it again? Because I know that you did mention it in your blog that you'd seen it. Yeah, I just... Soon, so. Right. When we talked about doing it, so I, I said, like, well, I think I saw it... I think I saw it in the theater, then I think I saw it when it was first on DVD, and then I haven't watched it since, and I, I still have the original release DVD or whatever, so I popped it in. And, I mean, now that I've seen both what he's done since and... You know, 1998 is 20 years ago. I mean, I've seen a lot of movies since then. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks more, you know, it's not as sort of mind-blowing. I mean, it looks more like this is, you know, a typical sort of, if not student film, first film. So it's, you know, it, it looks a lot more, it, and it doesn't look maybe as different as it looked to me back in 1998. However, I still think it holds up, and I, I think it's a lot of fun both as a crazy story and as a peek into a director who would, you know, become even more impressive over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have a similar, not quite the same experience with this film, but I did see it. um, I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw, I saw Requiem first. That was my first introduction to him. Well, that's a, that's an introduction. Yeah, really. And so (laughs) once we talked about the three movies we were going to do, and Requiem for a Dream didn't come up. I was like, oh, yes, good. Because <laughs> that's one of those uh, one-timers for me. It's like I really enjoyed the movie. I was kind of blown away by what it was doing. And then at the same time, I own the movie, but it's still in the plastic to where I haven't gone back and watched it. Because I feel like I remember all of the high notes still. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of burned in my brain, Like especially some of the visuals. And so after I watched that after I watched Requiem, I was like, okay, what else has this guy done? And, I, and so I sought out Pi and watched it and liked it and was kind of where you're going. It felt uh, a little bit like, here's here's a lot of my ideas. Let me iron them out the next time. Right, uh, right. You know? right. And so watching it, uh, I watched this yesterday, actually. And so I had a lot of those same sort of feelings. I thought that... Uh, I really like the callback to stuff that I remember as being Requiem for a Dream moments, uh, but mm-hmm. the, but are here, you know, with the popping of the pills and the unlocking of his door and and those sort of uh, the cuts that I think Requiem for a Dream is is well known for with that sort of repetitive uh, Ellen Burstyn watching her TV sort of uh, uh, cuts that yes. the camera does, and so I liked that. But then it was it was followed by some of the first film issues or college film issues where it's they're slow zooming out on the sky and there's leaves kind of blowing in the wind. And I'm like, oh, okay, this, this is something that feels important maybe when you're in college and then you watch it and you're like, I don't know what really that's doing. Like, I don't know if I loved, uh, you know, some of those moments like that. Um, I thought that, I thought it was really interesting the way that he builds this world. So I think that one of the thing that Aronofsky does that's, really solid in all of his films. I think Noah is the only one that I still haven't seen. And I'm not really uh, looking to seek that one out right away, but I'm sure I'll get around to it eventually. But I think that he does a really good job of world building Mm -hmm. in that it's not always what you expect because Max is this genius loner. So, you know, we're told that he's a genius and 
you know, the math, which we'll get to in a little bit, was definitely genius level compared to me. And we're it's watching, yeah, and, and, and we're watching this. And in a typical Hollywood film, I feel like your loner would be secluded and nobody likes him and he has no friends and he has nowhere to turn. And in this film, he's got a friendly neighbor girl that enjoys doing math with him. He's got the, his neighbor who, um, seems to be interested in him. He's got people that when he goes out are friendly to him and that are trying to help him out. And it just is a, a nice difference for me in what I'm, what I was expecting, I guess. It was a, it's like, I'm used to everyone being like, I'm used to the world being built and it's this one person and his conflict is the world. And instead he's got all of these allies, but he's choosing to seclude himself and choosing to sort of, um, be mired in his madness or to try to figure out the unknowable or that sort of thing. And I think that it's interesting that we paired these together because I think that, um, both of the films talk a lot about discovering either creativity or discovering the sort of unknowable thing. And I think that that's what Aronofsky wrestles with in a lot of his films. He does something pretty similar in the fountain as well. Right. Um, Right. But I think that, uh, I don't know. I, I really, I, I guess long way around it. I did enjoy the film quite a bit. Uh, there was parts and especially I, I remember the, the ending a little different than how it ends, I guess, but I, uh, I quite enjoyed it this time around. Yeah. I think, and one other thing to, I, you brought up an interesting point about how Max in it, in most movies, the, you know, you have the crazy person and then sort of the, the world in one way or another circles around him. But in this movie, I thought it was interesting, and, and it gets back to your talk about world building, where, I mean, Max is, you know, arguably crazy, genius, and but he's not, and he's very paranoid, but in this movie, there are reasons he should be paranoid, because there's both a secret group devoted to unlocking the, the, the secret number at the heart of the stock market, and a secret group of... Um, Jewish scholars who are trying to unlock the name of God through, and they're both trying to do it through the random numbers that appear in Pi, and you know, and hence the title. But it's sort of they're both after Max for different reasons, but with sort of similar goals, I think. And I, I, I thought that was interesting because the first you meet Max, and you're like, oh, this guy's just nuts. But it turns out he's not the only one who who subscribed to the to the the grand theory of numbers that he's working on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Uh... You know, I, one of the things I wrote down in my notes is Aronofsky is really interested in sort of uh, the contradiction between something scientific like math and then something higher like religion. And I feel right, like that's, right, right. that's things that he just likes to bounce back and forth in different projects, right? And some swing some ways uh, more than others. But I, he likes that, and he also is fascinated with madness, it seems like, just you know, people that are losing their minds or people that are not in their right minds or people that are obsessed with something. Yeah, know? it's hard. Yeah, maybe it's obsession. It's hard to think of a movie of his that doesn't deal with either madness or obsession or both. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, you know, this, Requiem for a Dream. Um, Black the Swan. Fa- well, I'm sorry, what? Black Swan. Black Swan, The Wrestler, mm-hmm. Mother, Noah. You know, I mean, even in a sense... Although, like you, I would, I would agree. Noah is sort of the. I mean, in a way, in such a, he has such a weird filmography. Noah is the one that really sort of puzzles you. It's like, well, 
Noah, huh? He wanted to tell the story of Noah. <laughs> it seems so odd, but he does, like I said, he does it in an interesting way. I, I still don't know if the movie completely succeeds, but it's definitely an Aronofsky film. So. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about Noah is, like I said, that's the one in the filmography that I've missed. And one of one of the guys that I used to work with, he was upset about Noah, and he's a big religious guy. And, and for, if people haven't figured out, I'm not a real big religious guy. And so he... Uh, he went to Noah and I said, oh, you went and saw that? This is years ago. And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, what'd you think? He's like, well, uh, you know, it was going along fine. And then they had like these things that were like rock monsters. And then, you know, it wasn't like the real story at all. And I just kind of, yeah. And I just kind of stood at it and stared at him blankly and was like, uh, <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't know if this is a rabbit hole. You and I, him and I needed to go down. I know, and that when I first heard he was doing Noah, I was kind of, you know, I was thinking like, oh, is he like, you know, is he do, is he going down the path of the Is God Dead movies and those kind of things? Oh, and yeah. it, it's not that kind of movie. It is, you know, it is the story of Noah that we all learned in Sunday school, but uh, it's not that. And, you know, real quick before we go back to Pie and Mother, I did see, I saw The Fountain in the theater, and that was. That's one I haven't revisited since, but that is really about both obsession and sort of almost religious ecstasy and revelation without, like, specifically tying it into, say, you know, the Christian God or or Noah's God or whatever. But Mm -hmm. it's – I mean, that's a wild movie too, and that's one people seem not to – remember quite so much which is weird considering it has you know wolverine in the starring role but uh that's right but it's it's something it's a i mean that's a real all his movies are really you know when the wrestler is arguably the most normal movie you've ever made you've you've got some kind of filmography yeah really yeah he's he's definitely an interesting guy and and for those that may be new to the show if you dig way back in the archives we did uh, ooh, this is probably like five years ago. We did mm-hmm. The Fountain, um, Mr. Sean Stenglin and I, who uh, was also on our epic discussion of Lost. So that sort of tells you our uh, our sort of mindset about not n- having to know everything and being okay uh, with not having to know everything. But so we quite you know, we quite enjoyed uh, we quite enjoyed The Fountain. Years ago, Billy and I also participated in a Lost podcast. <laughs> it well, must have been a Lost podcast back then. It must have been. I feel like uh, I feel like we were probably more positive than you guys would have been. You know, we we were really into it. In fact, I remember making comments when we were getting toward the end, like I can't wait to sit down and watch the whole show again, you know, and and see all we missed. And once it ended, we were like, well, I really don't have any interest in watching it again. But we see, loved it at a certain point. I mean, we really loved it. That's really funny. See, because uh, that's been a show that's been uh, big for me and my wife because we we started watching that before we got married, mm-hmm. and then we were just going through it because I had all the DVDs, so we were just you know going one at a time, and we're we're pretty lousy when it comes to watching things, um, you know, and being on top of things when we watch it. Like we try to watch the Marvel Netflix stuff, and we're like four 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 or five series behind. You know, because we just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, let's just watch it tomorrow. And that sort of, yeah, I got a thing to watch for the show. Or, right. You know. But so we watched that and it spanned it spanned a, a good amount of years. And we got to the end and we were like making this whole night out of it. And <laughs> and had, you know, had a bottle of wine and watched this, that and the other. And uh, she ended up 
Well, she says falling asleep. We'll say falling asleep. (laughs) Um, So she ended up falling asleep. So she still doesn't really know how it ends. And I remember watching that and just like I was drunk enough to where everything just made total sense. And I like (laughs) saw the world, right? Like I, Uh I saw into what. Uh, what the writers, what Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof were doing. And I was like, oh, it all makes sense. And I wake up the next morning and I was like, I have no idea. What, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. I had no idea what happened. And I tried rewatching it and I knew I didn't have like the same, uh, the same sort of feeling that I did the day before. And it's quite a deal. Sometimes you have to just be in the right mindset. You know what I'm saying? Well, oh, I agree. <laughs> and I mean, I was, you know, we'll go, go and lost talk in a second, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, I I was disappointed by the ending like a lot of people were. However, I would argue there are a couple of episodes when you find out Locke's real story near the beginning of the run, the whole thing when Desmond calls Penny on the phone. Oh, those are, I mean, those are some of the best things I've ever seen on television. I mean, they knocked me out when those happened. They were so beautifully done. So I'm not going to blast lost. I mean, when it was good, it was great. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they should, if they haven't, they should have written a book on how the last couple seasons went down. Right. From the whole writer strike stuff and not knowing how many seasons you have and all that kind of, you know, do you really have an ending? No, not really. Well, we kind of do, well, we kind of don't, you know, that sort of stuff. And it's so. kind of, it always reminds me of Twin Peaks, you know, where they, because I just finished Lynch's bio and it's, you know, they... ABC wanted, they wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer. And so they're like, okay, here you go. And nobody's heart was really in it. And yeah. And then they'd kind of drained the show. And then later, of course, he comes back with fire walk with me and the, the third season of twin peaks, which clearly was Lynch doing what Lynch wanted to do. And it was great, but you know, it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough. TV's tough. That's why <laughs> I'm <not> moving. <laughs> That's right. It's tough business, that TV. So, Here's another thing that I have written down about Darren Aronofsky is I think that he, more than most filmmakers going right now, at least ones that I could think of off the top of my head, he is, is able to create such momentum and dread and unease and just of, he just feels to me, even in Pi, like a dangerous filmmaker because mm-hmm. I always feel like I'm not ever really sure where things are going and for you know for someone that's loved movies for years and years and uh you know doing this show for our sixth year now and and before we started the show i did uh i had a 365 movies in 365 days challenge that i did where i had to watch a new new movie every day and review it and all that stuff um so you know i've seen a movie or two and Aronofsky is one of the few guys where I'm watching it, and we'll talk more about this with our second film, where I'm like, what is this? And where is this going? And it, it almost make, it almost like gives you that sense of being like a kid. Because right. as a kid, you're just watching it. You're like, you're not looking at the mechanics. You're not looking like, oh, this is the end of Act One. So obviously this is going to flip and then it's going to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I just, I just watch him and I marvel at the way that. He ramps things up and slows them down and then kind of twists and turns. And, and in Pi, for me, it's where, you know, he he's sort of going down. He seems like such a loner. And then he's going with the, the Jewish folks and kind of helping them. And then he's going with the Wall Street folks and he's kind of helping them. And he doesn't really know where he's going. 
And then it seems like he's definitely going crazy. And then he's seeking help, but then he doesn't want help. And it's just like, oh, my God, like this guy is all over the board. And I just think that that's exciting filmmaking because it's I'm so used to here's the formula, blah, 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 the end. And it's just so nice to see somebody not do that. And, you know, it's, and Pi, I mean, I definitely, you know, I couldn't see where it was going. And, and I, you know, I've, I think you and I both, we've seen a lot of movies and most movies we can make a pretty good guess as to who the hero is, who the villain is and when it's all going to end. And yeah, and his movies, Pi, I mean, Requiem for a Dream, I mean, that just drags you to areas that you don't think it's going. And frankly, you don't want to go to. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, you're not the only one. I've, I've seen several reviews put that on the great but only watch once list because it's that ending. It's just rough. You know, you have four storylines, I think, all converging in like hell. And I mean, it's just so bleak and so depressing, but so visually amazing. You can't look away. And, yeah. and the same thing with the wrestler, which we talked about in Black Swan and especially Mother. I mean, I love going into a movie and like you said, a feeling of danger. Like, I don't trust this director to do something that's going to make me happy or comfortable or, you know, I don't know what he's going to do. And I'm a little nervous that of what I'm going to see come up on the screen. And I, I mean, I love a movie like that. I love something that's going to surprise me and even disturb me or frankly, hopefully disturb me and you'll leave me with some sort of a, an impact. Mm-hmm. And Aronofsky, he's got that. He's yeah, got that talent. He definitely does. What, um, one of the things that I think that he does a really good job of too is I think that the the sort the sound design I guess we'll say it that way instead of having um, Clint Manzel who I guess is a is the photographer here uh, in this his composer that he used and I think of him as from Requiem and from the Fountain uh, most often but um, so he had a little camo cameo in here but I think instead of the score or the soundtrack I'm thinking more of the the sound design that he uses where he allows a phone to ring for too long, like those sorts of things. Right, where The right, phone right. keeps ringing and ringing and ringing, and I'm like, oh, my God, like it's making me uncomfortable hearing it ring that much. Or we've got, you know, the the buzzing sounds of insects or the little crawling yeah. ants or, or what have you. I just think that he is so smart with the way that he uses sound in his movies as well. I think you're right, and especially in a movie like this where so much of it either takes place inside Max's brain or at least the focus of the movie is his actual brain and the thoughts in his head and how they're they're coming out of control. You know, when he takes the drill toward the end and, mm-hmm. yeah, it's you, you don't want to see it happen. And plus, the, you know, the, the whining sound and, and just when he's in his apartment, if, you know, people knocking on the door, people trying to get in. It, you're right, the sound becomes overwhelming. It's like, you know, mentioning Lynch again. I think, you know, Lynch is maybe the master of sound design, just layering those almost subliminal sounds throughout his movies so you just build up this sense of unease that you almost can't explain. And it's nothing you're looking at. It's just this sense you're getting because of the sounds you're sort of almost barely hearing. And it's it's a tool I, a lot of filmmakers don't use, but, boy, they should use it more because it can be very effective. Yeah. Would you say that uh, Aronofsky is a little bit more of, like, a commercialized Lynch for this generation? I could, yeah, I could say that. in this movie and, and Pi is sort of his, you know, thriller, uh, high-speed, more, you know, sexed-up version of Eraserhead, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's a, you know, black-and-white early film, obviously very personal, 
But I mean, and I love Eraserhead, but Eraserhead is not fast paced. No, no, matter no, it is not. No, what you say about it, it's not a, it's not a thriller. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of art up there on the screen. But yeah, I think I could see Aronofsky as being, yeah, sort of the Lynch for this, uh, this generation. Because I remember. I, th- I think I remember anyway. I was listening to some older uh, out of theaters ones, and I think I remember you saying that you felt like Fincher was this uh, generation's Kubrick. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I think. I think so. And then you're going, and then so we got Aronofsky for for Lynch. I think so. All that right. would make sense because you know, Fincher has that obs- you know at least perceived to be that obsessive quality and sort of the cold quality that. Kubrick either it did or didn't have, but that's sort of his reputation. So, but yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. Let's. Uh, I got a big question for you for Pi. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So my the way that I remember the ending is I remember him, and obviously spoilers, and but uh, I remember him taking the drill and drilling out the sort of growth on his head, and I thought he had died. I guess. Like, in my memory, he had died. And then I watched it this time, and I was like, wait a minute, he's on the park, and he's talking to the little girl, and he doesn't know all of the calculations by hand. Um, I guess, in my mind, in my memory, it was he died in the sort of madness and this um, his attempt from both sides, both sides that are pulling him one way or the other, had led him to end his life. And that was sort of my takeaway was, oh, look at this. He was overwhelmed by it. So with it actually not ending that way, which is always fun when I revisit movies and I'm like, oh, my memory is trash, actually. (laughs) Uh, What do you think that Aronofsky is going for in the movie? Like, what do you think that he's striving to say? Because he always says something in movies, right? So I don't know. I guess with this different ending, I don't know. I, I guess I don't have an answer that I'm looking for. I'm just kind of wondering. That is a good question because, I mean, it's arguably, you know, a happy, cheery ending sort of. I mean, on the one hand, he does, you know, he's not the mathematician he once was, but he seems more at peace at the end. And he almost seems kind of, you know, amused that he can't do these math problems that the, his little friend is is shouting out to him that he used to be able to do, you know, flawlessly. Um, I don't know. Is it like, I don't know. I mean, is he saying, is he saying obsession is a dangerous thing and, you know, and we should back away from it or yeah, is he saying, that could be because that, I mean, that's essentially what he's, he's like, obsession is bad. Here's the next seven movies to prove my point. Right. right. <laughs> or whatever and, and he's got. Have happy endings, by the way. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's as good of a guess as I could come up with, I think, is, is just talking about how obsession can ruin your life and you need to excise it from yourself. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a uh, yeah. It's 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 we're looking for yeah for answers to what does it mean, especially in this movie, which it seems like it's going to mean one thing, and then it it does not mean. Yeah, I will say also that um, I think the best part for me. Well, yeah, I got. I'll say the best part for me is uh, Mark Margulis as Saul. Mm-hmm. He's great, yeah. yes, and he's. Uh, I think the other movie that we're talking about is one of the other ones. I think I saw in the little trivia that he's not in. I think he's only not in uh, Mother. 
Is that the I know he's in just off the top of my head, I can definitely picture him in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, I think the the trivia said that he's either got a credited role or he's in the background or something like that in almost every one of his movies. He's also in Ace Ventura. Oh, is that right? He is. <laughs> That's really funny. He's, done, he's still working. Oh, is he really? Wow. He was born in 39. Mm, well, good for him. He just seems like he's uh, a busy guy. Yeah. Let's see. Hmm. Now I guess uh, maybe I'm making that up because I don't see it in the trivia now. Anyway. He's in a lot of a lot of. He was in the fountain. So yeah. There we go. All right. So yes. Um. So yeah, I quite enjoyed his scenes, and I think that I was sort of spent when the movie was over. I guess I'll say it that way. Like this is a movie that is kind of grinding. Uh, for for when I watch it because it's like. There's so much, uh, you know, there's a lot of handheld camera stuff. There's a lot of, like, where's he going? What's he doing? Aronofsky loves playing with geography to where you, you never really get a sense of what his apartment actually looks like. Because you get that, uh, you get the one shot where there's all this computer equipment everywhere. But there's no, like, oh, here's the, uh, here's the kitchen. Here's the bathroom. Here's the bedroom. You know, there's none of really that. It's just, like, this big mass of computerized stuff. Mm-hmm. everywhere uh and and we'll talk more about how he plays around with sort of layout in the in our next film with the house yes uh, but so that's another thing that he seems to be to be interested in um uh, but yeah so i guess sort of wrapping up pie i i i did enjoy the film i think that uh i appreciated it more than i did the first time i saw it because i wasn't you know i th- i feel like anytime you come to a first film after you've seen something that he's pretty well known for or that a director's known for and you go watch the first one you're like oh okay yeah i guess i can see that but but i thought it was good i just there was a couple of little first timey things in there that i didn't think necessarily worked i thought some of the uh, i know that they saved a lot of money not lighting some of the subway stuff or some of the outdoor stuff uh, but it looks I mean, it's real grainy. I mean, it looks like yeah, <laughs> it doesn't look the uh, the highest of qualities. We'll say it that way. So, all right. Well, you got anything else uh, before we move on, there, Mister Pfeiffer? You know, one thing. Um, this is uh, just a real quick comic book tie into this movie. There was an um, Alan Moore comic from the early '90s that legendarily only ran two issues. It was supposed to run twelve. It by he and uh, Bill Sienkiewicz called Big Numbers that dealt with sort of in some of its many subplots, but it dealt with like high math and, you know, crazy conspiracy theories and that sort of thing. And what I found interesting is that when I was watching this movie, because I recently reread these two issues, I don't know why, because they don't even come close to ending, much less setting up the story, but they're really good comics. But one thing they both do is they both use that image that Aronofsky uses of cream mixing into coffee like several Mm. times. Uh It's a black and white visual and it seems to imply you know is it a pattern is it a meaningful pattern is it not and I, I thought it was too you know movie about math and a comic book that's at least partly about math and they both use that same visual of cream at the coffee and it just it just struck me for some reason yeah interesting yeah uh, I guess we didn't really mention the math too much when when he starts talking about all the numbers and the math stuff I do get a little bit lost because I'm like oh okay I don't I don't know what you're talking about like I'm <laughs> It's like, uh, plot the plot and just kind of move on. I like the part, though, when the young uh, Jewish scholar is showing him how, and I, 
I don't, I'm assuming this is true, although I certainly haven't checked it for proof, but where he's saying like, this number means these words in the Jewish alphabet. Oh, and it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems to have like, wow, that's weird. That does connect in this and that. So it's, you know, more, I like that Aronofsky throws in enough that we might think could, you know, could this really work or could this kind of thing be true? Even if it's not, I, I appreciate a director trying to convince you at least a little bit that it could be. That's right. I think that is a really important scene because otherwise it's just all this high math nonsense and you're like, Oh, okay, well I'm supposed to just believe that he's a genius. It's a little right. bit like if it didn't have it in there, it'd be a little bit like how uh goodwill hunting is just like, Oh, you're, he's a genius. He just does genius stuff. And you're like, Oh, okay. You don't really get a sense of, you know, that's, that's not a huge part of the actual film, but it's just like the first thing that came to my mind of someone that's supposed to be smart and he's writing down numbers and stuff, but you don't really know what he's doing. So Anyway, okay, so our second film, it is from last year, it's from 2017, and it is Mother. We spend all our time here. I want to make a paradise. She redid all of it. Every last detail. And she breathed life back into every room. Are you happy? I love you. Please, come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just gonna let him sleep in our house. Hello. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? are you doing in their luggage? What do they want? God help you. They've come here to see me. Come quick! New people, new ideas. I'm so sorry. Get out of my house! You give and you give and you give. It's just never enough. And the IMDb plot synopsis goes like this. Amidst a wild, flat meadow encircled by an Edenic, lush forest, a couple have cocooned themselves in a secluded mansion that was not long, not so long ago burned to the ground, devotedly restored by the supportive wife. Again, this is IMDb, so it's a little rough for me. Within this safe environment, the once famous middle-aged poet husband is desirous of creating his magnum opus. However, he seems to be unable to break out of the persistent creative rut that haunts him. Then, unexpectedly, a knock at the door, the sudden arrival of a cryptic late-night visitor and his intrusive wife will stimulate the writer's stagnant imagination. Little by little, much to the perplexed wife's surprise, the more 
The more chaos he lets in their haven, the better for his punctured male ego. In the end, will this incremental mess blemish irreparably the (laughs) the couple's inviolable sanctuary? My goodness, that's the... I'm going to try to sound smart there at the end. Okay, so this is from last year. This is Mother Mr. Piper. I'm going to let you take the first swing. Oh, boy. Take the first swing at this movie. This was one that I finished... Maybe two, three hours ago. All right, good. It's fresh in your head. <laughs> it is fresh, and holy shit! So I've got a <laughs> I've, got, I've got a whole lot of I got a whole lot of disconjointed thoughts. Um, okay. And, and things that I've like wrote down one or two words, and so we'll see if I can remember <laughs> what those were. Um. So yes, yeah, so tell me about you and mother. Okay. Well, it's it almost ties together with pie because I saw this in the theater with my wife, and it was either. It was either opening night or the second night, but I know, like, we had a babysitter or Ali was in sleepover or something, so we're like, let's go see a movie. Let's go see this movie, Mother. And I deliberately wasn't reading up on it too much. I didn't read the reviews, and people weren't talking about it yet. Mm-hmm. And we thought from the commercial that it kind of looked like Rosemary's Baby. Like, you have yes. Jennifer Prince and... You know, and, and Javier Bardem are the, the the couple, and then Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer were in there, and they're talking about you need to have a kid, and it had a creepy vibe, and we couldn't tell whose house they were in, so we're thinking maybe, like, you know, these people have a plot to, you know, like Rosemary's Baby, to impregnate her with the devil or something, and we love Rosemary's Baby. It's one of my favorite movies, so we're like, well, let's go see this, because, you know, I Aronofsky's always interesting, and at the very least, it'll be... You know, a good little horror movie. <laughs> and boy, oh boy. <laughs> hmm. Because I divide the movie sort of into... And we're going to spoil the hell out of this, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I divide the movie into sort of two halves. The f- And the first half is basically you have Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem, and, and they're in this house, and they're this loving couple. He's a little older. He's a mysterious poet. She's rehabbing the house. And then at a certain point, Ed Harris stops by thinking it's a bed and breakfast. And Javier Bardem is like, well, he can stay. And she's like, well, why should he? No, that's weird. We don't know him. And he's like, forget it. He's staying. Da, 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 da. Then Michelle Pfeiffer playing Ed Harris's wife shows up. And she, and they both are staying now. And she is so, it's, she's great in this movie. Mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer great performance but she is so uncomfortable and you oh. hate her so much oh. and the whole first half of the movie my only thought is get out of my house get out of my house get out <laughs> of my house it's like the ultimate nightmare of the guests who wouldn't leave and then of course their sons come over one of the sons kills the other and then you kind of start seeing where this if not the plot where sort of the parallel is going with this because then it starts to play more like Adam and, you know, Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer are sort of Adam and Eve characters and their sons are like Cain and Abel and one kills the other and goes off. And, and it's definitely, I think Aronofsky has even said it, but it's definitely a religious parable of some sort. Now it's kind of hard to pick a direct, you know, Javier Bardem is sort of God and, Jennifer Lawrence is kind of the earth or like the life force of humanity or something. But gradually as that first half of 
insane tension, to me at least, ends. Then all these people start visiting the house because they want to see Javier Bardem. He's like become he's published his book and now he's this famous poet or artist or you know he's a creator in other words. And none of this religious stuff is ever spelled out, but I think it becomes fairly obvious. But the second half of the movie is just where it gets batshit crazy. And to me, it played like a history of religion in like, I don't even know how long it is, like 45 minutes or something where people come in, they worship at the foot of Javier Verdam or God. They're trying to push Jennifer Lawrence out of the way. But at the same time, the nightmare guest scenario keeps playing out because they're wrecking her house. They're going and using the bathrooms upstairs that they're not supposed to be using. They're having sex in their bedrooms. And poor Jennifer Lawrence is just going nuts. And then this is all in the course of one night. She is pregnant now. She goes full term, has the baby. Um, they all want to see the baby, and then do you want to say what happens next? <laughs> <laughs> you can go ahead and tell them you're doing great. Okay. Well, and you know, so, and at this point, it is, I mean, it's very sort of tense and violent and crazy, but to me it was entertaining because it's really, it's really filmed just in a, in a, such a claustrophobic way. The whole movie, you were almost right there, either in Jennifer Lawrence's face or looking over her shoulder. I mean, you're with her sort of the entire movie, so you're experiencing it through her, and she's not having a good time. But she has a baby, and then she's holding the baby. It's a newborn baby, and, you know, that's kind of one of the few peaceful moments in the movie. But then the guests barge in. They grab the baby. She goes screaming, running after the baby, and eventually she comes <laughs> This is the part where there were walkouts when I saw the movie. She comes apart in a scene where they are all eating the baby, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. newborn baby, which is, you know, and at that point it's like, well, obviously, you know, it's a metaphor for eating the body of Christ, I guess, or yeah, something, but yeah. still, you are watching a movie where they are on screen eating a baby, which is, I've seen a lot of movies, a lot of extreme, you know, horror movies, and I don't think I've ever seen an on-screen eating of an actual baby. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yes. Then the thing, you know, and then it sort of all comes full circle, and then the next day starts with a new Javier Bardem waking up with a new wife, similar to Jennifer Lawrence, but definitely not Jennifer Lawrence. You get the feeling that it's all going to start over again. Right. Okay. So what? It's a wild ride. <laughs> and by the way, Kristen Wiig is in it. Yeah, and Kristen Wiig is like a very not not Kristen Wiig sort of performance. She, she kills several people, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Because what? it becomes a big armed conflict at a certain point. Like a big armed conflict. Yes. So I'm curious as to what your wife thought of this, Will. You know, I, I um, just recently, I said, you know, I said, I'm going to go down. I'm going to talk with Eric about, Mother, do you want to say anything? Um, and she says, well, I didn't. She's not going to say that she, she like, really liked it. But she definitely found it interesting, and she was glad she saw it. Mm. You know, it's kind of movie she was glad to experience. I don't think she ever wants to watch it again. And I don't know that she particularly enjoyed it, but she did. She liked the experience of seeing it, and she, and we especially liked the next day being able to tell people like, "Wait, don't you hear about this movie we saw?" Because you know, it was to most people, I'm sure. Hey, it's the new Jennifer Lawrence movie, the <laughs> most popular actress in the world. What's she doing? What crazy romantic comedy is she up to with Javier Bardem? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> So, just getting done with this, I, I figured out the, the Cain and Abel stuff. Um, 
I guess I'll, I'll just front load it by saying I loved it. I thought it was really good. And, I did too. I and, did too. And so this is where I wrote down that he's one of the most dangerous filmmakers working is because I just sort of, you know, I didn't know what to expect, especially once people started getting there and started breaking all of her stuff and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I, and just looking at my notes, I had, I had certain things like, what is, what is this world? Just, you know, before I've got it figured out, like trying to piece together what's really happening. Um, I will echo your sentiment that Miss Michelle Pfeiffer was tremendous in this. She's great. And she's playing a character that is not too dissimilar from a character that I am familiar with. And I'll <laughs> say it that way. I'll leave it as vague as I can. Um, Oh, this character, though, you just hate her so much. She makes it so uncomfortable. Yes. And so I think that, uh, you know, after I think who I think we're only in like episode three of season two of Westworld. So I like seeing Ed Harris doing something a little different Mm -hmm. uh, than what I've been seeing him do. Uh, I think that he's so I think that he's good at that. I thought the Gleason brothers were so maddening. I wanted them out of there. I was like, how dare you? ruin this woman's house and you know they're fighting and all this sort of thing and you know a little behind the scenes stuff is i'm finishing my basement oh no and so you know i'm i'm at the process where i framed it and and uh insulated it and so now i'm uh yesterday and then again tomorrow i'll be doing um i'll be finishing the drywall i got the drywall actually up i just need to finish uh taping and mudding and that sort of thing Uh so to see these people ruin this house that she's been putting together I was so appalled and I was so not pleased with the way that they were treating someone else's home. And I will say that I am such a big, uh, you do not drop in at my house kind of a person. Right, right, right. Yeah. I'm a, I'm very much a, Hey, I'm going to be here at this time. Okay, great. But it just showing up. That is not a thing. And so watching these people show up and she's just like, what are they doing here? I was like, yeah, what are they doing here? Get mm-hmm. them out of here. And she gets no support from her husband. Oh, I know. Like, this is great. Let them in. Come on. They're here to see me. They love me. I thought that that was such good casting, though, because Javier Bardem, I mean, outside of him playing the Chagor sort of roles, he is he does have that sort of like Spanish, like, oh, everything's everything. Just come in and share. And, just Mm -hmm. you know, he's very charming and very like, oh, everything's fine. You know, don't worry about it. And so I thought that he was great in that. I thought Jennifer Lawrence is, I thought that, uh, there were times where I kind of, like I was, I was really liking her and then I'd lose her a little bit and then I'd really like her again. Like I was kind of a little, uh, back and forth on her. I wasn't, I'm just not, I'm not really sold on, on her, I guess. Like I've never really loved her in anything. I agree. But I think in this, she almost, I mean, the performance, it's not bad, certainly. No, no, no. And I think, it almost works because it's her. It's mm. she's, you know, the young blonde, huge movie star who has, you know, a certain. There's a certain vulnerability to her, and you're certain you're seeing this. You're seeing Jennifer Lawrence really get drugged through the ringer. I mean, really, you know, yeah, really, she goes through literally goes through hell in this movie. Yeah, I like and the it, fact that I like when. Uh, see, I think my favorite bits was. When, I mean, besides the craziness at, at the end, just to sort of watch the sort of, uh, the filmmaking at the end. But I think I, I really enjoyed Michelle Pfeiffer and her because it was almost seeing like, oh, here's Michelle Pfeiffer 30 years ago. 
You know, this is like her looking back on herself almost mm-hmm. because it's like, uh, oh, you know, she was commenting on how old he is compared to her. And and she's like, oh, you love him so much. And it was never like a you love each other. It was like you love him so much. Right. And, uh, and so those sorts of things I thought were really, were really interesting in those, uh, in those moments with her. Um, there were some things that I didn't, I, I didn't necessarily understand. Like, so early on, we're not quite sure what's going on. We know that Michelle Pfeiffer's kind of like imposing her will and sort of being too friendly and, or not friendly, but being like, uh, too much of a, of a, what's yours is mine kind of a house guest. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, she goes upstairs and there's like blood on some napkins, but it looks like it's not like a, you know, it's just like a little cut or something. And so Jennifer Lawrence throws that in the toilet and then there, the toilet's clogged. Right. And there's something in there and I could never, I couldn't figure out what yeah. that was supposed to be. I couldn't figure that out either. At first I thought, is it like some kind of fetusy thing? Or? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was I thinking. I still not quite sure. There's certain things like, and it's, it's been a while since I've seen it and I actually do want to watch it again. But, um, like, you know, she keeps drinking this medicine or this certain yeah, liquid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not quite sure how, because all that fits into the religious or, you know, sort of a retelling of a Bible story kind of a thing. I'm not quite sure it all fits together, but, you know, it's, there's, the thing is, especially, I mean, you've just seen it. There's so much in this movie. Yeah. Like that, I will watch that whole second half again and just kind of like stop after each chunk and just see like, what happened here? What happened here? Because it, it happens. I mean, he throws everything at you fast and fierce, and it's hard to keep track of exactly what's going on. Yeah, they, we also have the thing that uh, where um, where the brother is killed, and we have the floor that create that, that right. develops a hole, and it goes down to the basement, down into hell. Um, I put what's up with the vagina floor? Yeah, uh, and vagina <laughs> vagina floor is my new band, by the way. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, I don't know what what this is supposed to represent other than her having to go down to the basement, I guess, you know, I was like, I couldn't quite figure out what that, uh, what that was really representing that much, especially when later on she repairs it. And then the rug keeps showing the stain. And I just, I don't know. I just don't know that I fully got, I fully got that. And I will say, I guess I didn't mention this. I went into this completely, uh, unspoiled. Like I knew nothing about what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I knew that, like, what you and I talked about The Wrestler, I knew that it was Jennifer Lawrence, but I didn't even know that Javier Bardem was in it until you had told me that. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh. And my wife goes, well, yeah, because I told her I was watching this, and she goes, well, that's uh, that's the movie with Jennifer Lawrence. And I was like, yeah, 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 don't tell me anything about it. And she was like, no, I was just going to tell you, remember, that's the one where people walked out? And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I knew that. <laughs> I was like, I knew that people walked out. And it was funny because I was watching it, and I was like, all right, so... Let me see if I can figure out where they walk out, right? And there's a lot of places where they could. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I mean, there's the the almost rape that turns into consensual sex scene where there's she gets that. pregnant. And I was like, well, I don't I mean, uh, maybe. And then there's the uh there's the passing of the baby and the baby's peeing all over everything. Right. I forgot about that, but that's right. Yeah. yeah. And the baby's peeing all over everything. And I was like, Oh, like, are they really going to be that sensitive? The religious folks to, and then you, <laughs> and then you hear the crack and I'm like, Oh shit. Like they, now I know. Yeah. Like they killed the baby. And then they show 
a, they show like two or three frames of this disfigured body on this temple and then you turn and you see everyone just snacking away at, at whatever and I was like holy shit but <laughs> then I also looked and I was like wait a minute there's still there's only like 15 minutes left in this like you're telling me you couldn't tough it the last 15 I was like that seems like attention seeking to me I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, it's horrific. And it's like, but you got 15 minutes. Come on. Right. And plus it's not, I mean, obviously the baby eating scene is, you know, pretty horrible to most people. Although yeah. I will say, like you said, it's, it's not like he lingers on it. No, it's, it's, you get the idea what's happening and then it's, it's over. I mean, you don't, you know, it's not like a scene from Dawn of the Dead or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, I mean, even from, it's not even as bad as like Walking Dead. I mean, just to, just in terms of the gore, right, right, you know? right. But because you're, you, they they don't even show anything. They just have like their mouth sort of covered, and they're just kind of chewing away, and you get the idea. But the whole ramifications of it obviously is horrific. But and then I was thinking, well, because soon after that, she gets the shit kicked out of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they start tearing at her clothes, and they start just beating the hell out of her. And I was like, oh my god, like maybe they, maybe this was like, all right, now I'm out. You know, like the baby stuff, like, I don't know if I can make it. And then she's starting to get her ass kicked. And you're like, no, you can't do this to Katniss. I'm I'm leaving. <laughs> Katniss. <laughs> That's right. And so, I, so I don't know. I, don't, I think it's that combo that probably did it, though. I can't remember if I, if I said this last one. If we, the last episode we mentioned people walking out. But I, I do distinctly remember going to see Brokeback Mountain in the theater. And people walked out during the first sex scene. And I'm thinking, oh, didn't know? First of all, please. <laughs> Second of all, really, you didn't... I mean, the buzz on that movie, it was pretty obvious what the movie was about. And that scene is relatively, you know... Oh, yeah. For what... You know. I love that movie. I think Brokeback <laughs> oh, Mountain is tremendous. What? Really? Yeah. God. I don't know. That, what, but I do live in Rockford, Illinois. So oh, well, there, well, yeah. And, I, and I'm, in Lincoln, yeah, I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska. I mean, it's freaking maroon around here, so... I, I'm not too surprised if people were to walk out of uh, out of Lincoln, Nebraska theaters. Actually, I, I would be more surprised if it even came here because I don't believe that it did. Oh, really? Yeah, it did come to Rockford. And, you know, the thing is, this movie, I was going to say it left right away, but it, it bombed financially. Yes. yes it, it, did. it did not do well. So, which is a shame, but I don't know. The fact that it exists, I think, is a tremendous triumph for Aronofsky and company. Well, if I recall, I, I don't think that The Fountain did gangbusters mm-hmm. either. I don't think so. But I think, like, he must be, you know, every, like, I'm, Black Swan must have done well. I think the wrestler Oh, did yeah. Pretty- well, I think Black Swan getting that Oscar push, I think that that definitely mm-hmm. made people curious. And there's nothing real overt in there. I mean, there's the... There's the Winona Ryder sort of stuff, but... Oh, you know what scene in, always gets me in Black Swan? Every time, I can barely watch it. Is uh, And this is because it's not over the top, because it's something you can almost see. Do you know that... Remember the scene where she peels the skin on her finger oh, back? Oh, yes. Ooh. That, every time! That's the one scene that just kills me. I, I can't watch it. Well, and speaking of that, we started watching... Uh, we started watching Sharp Objects. On HBO. Oh yeah, yeah. On HBO, is it good? Is um, it, uh... It's not too bad. It's the it's the guy that did uh, Big Little Lies. Okay. And so if you if people out there have watched that, it's real similar to where it goes. Like it flashes back a lot, so you have a lot of different times going on. Um, 
And so that's a little bit disjointed. It also makes me think like if you're going back and forth that much, is that because your main plot isn't really that interesting and you're trying yeah. to like trying Good to question. visually dramatic, you know, dramatize it a little bit. But anyway, it's called sharp objects because she's a self harmer. And so she has, oh. she has scars on her forearms and that sort of thing. And, uh, it's, you know, it's a Gillian Flynn novel. And so it's, it's got a, a, a complex female lead. We'll say it that way, but she's, okay. she likes to, uh, she has a, a bad day and, and finds a little needle and, and sticks that underneath her fingernail. Ah. Right. And so she's like, and she's like teasing it out. She's like, Ooh, should I do it? Should I not do it? Like she's kind of having that debate and you're just sitting there squirming as an audience member. Like, Oh, don't do that. (laughs) So that's one of those to where it may be sort of a cheap ploy, but man, does that work on me every time? You know, I, uh, I, you know, I mean, I was the baby eating. I was like, oh my God, a baby eating. But not once did I like look away like, oh, it's too gross. I, oh, yeah. I can feel that. No problem. <laughs> That's right. But boy, pe- peeling back a fingernail. Will's not in for that. <laughs> no, I think it's because it's something like you could do. Like I could yeah. do it right now if I wanted to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. So. Um, one of the things that you mentioned already was I wrote down here as like, wow, this is starting to feel a lot like Rosemary's baby. Mm-hmm. And I think that when it felt like that to me is you get that funeral sequence and that sort of, uh, or like a memorial or what have you, and they want her to speak and they're all looking at her yeah, and, and I'm like, oh, they're going to do some ritual. She's going to get pregnant. It's going to be some sort of devil baby, and it's going to be a modern retelling of Rosemary's Baby, kind of. Is kind of where I was thinking, right? And, that's what we were thinking from like the trailer. Like that seemed what it was going to be. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, okay, I can I can go along with that. And obviously, it's a little bit it's a little bit different than that. But you know, we're still doing the heaven and hell, God and de- the devil, and all that sort of thing. So. Uh, I did. I did like that sort of callback feeling because that's a tremendous film. And and if people haven't listened to to Will and Billy talk about that, they should. They could check that out as well over at Out of was, Theaters, right? I was going to go over the table with Billy if he didn't like Rosemary's. Like, there's certain <laughs> movies that like that. The Apartment. I'm like, he better like them, or this is just going to get ugly. That's funny because I uh, because. I was going through movie stuff and I was like, oh, Rosemary's Baby. And I had it like half finished or something like that, that episode of yours. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll finish listening to the rest of there. And then I'm on there and I did, <laughs> I'm on there, uh, on a mention. And I was like, oh, geez, I don't remember writing that at all. That must have been a long night. <laughs> so that's always funny. Cause then, cause it was like an episode or two before that, uh, is when Ben is, uh, mentioned in one of the, comment right. yeah. I'm like oh holy shit look at that it's a so, small world that's it's funny that's funny oh, stuff God. so okay one of the other things that i thought towards the end and like you said there's a lot to sort of unpack one word, let me just make one more thing, thing about rosemary's baby oh, sure, like, sure. is that um you know it is like rosemary's baby in in the sense that um one of the great and creepy things about rosemary's baby is nobody believes rosemary everyone is against her and you feel that way for Jennifer Lawrence's character too. And I've heard my wife say this. I've heard other women say this. And I've I've heard um, film critics, female film critics, say this. They say the the most the hardest scene to see in Rosemary's Baby is when she goes to see Charles Grodin and she thinks he's on her side and he just turns her over to the Satanist again. Oh and yeah. 
you oh, can't yeah, the uh, the replacement doctor, person. right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, if you can't trust your OBGYN, then you can't trust. That'd be like the worst betrayal you could have. Mm. Even worse than your husband. Because oh, that's when you're most vulnerable, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. So, yeah, and and Jennifer Lawrence like nobody's on her side. Everyone is cheerfully against her. Oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, they're they're cheerfully against her, even when she gets to where she's very pregnant, and the house is just be- turning to shambles. And I think the thing that upset me the most is we have, um, I believe it's the it's the sort of Thanksgiving dinner style. I think it's that one after <laughs> he's written, um. And, uh, yeah, because he wrote before the, the child came, right? And so, right. uh, it's that sequence, and then the people get on the sink that isn't braced yet. And she's like, no, 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 don't get, oh. don't get on there. And then they keep, they keep getting on there, and I'm like, no, get off the sink. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote down and I had to pause it to make sure that I could write that, right? So, toward, what I started doing towards the end of the movie is, anytime, I was going to write something. I had to pause it because I was like, all right, so I'm not going to miss any more of this. Right. Because, you know, most of the times I'll just kind of write while the movie's playing or whatever. But I was like, no, 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 no. I got to, I got to pay attention here and I've got to pause each time I'm going to finish, each time I'm going to write something down. And so I put that I was having such anxiety because I have, I am an anxious person and I don't like crowds. Right. And so even though I'm a huge Nebraska Cornhusker person, like I don't really like going to the football games because I don't like 90 some thousand people around me. And so I'm, I, I don't like big groups and I certainly don't like them when they're uninvited. And so yeah. just watching her sort of deal and she's being, you know, she's being polite and she's got her kind of strained Jennifer Lawrence voice that kind of mm-hmm. squeaks in and out. And she's like, excuse me. Yeah. And she keeps saying, excuse me, <laughs> you know, don't do that. Please don't do that. And she's trying to be, you know, okay, well, you can sit here, but then you got to go. No, you can't lay down. This is my house. And then it was when the old man, there's an old man who decides he's going to take a rest and sleep on the house. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no. And she goes, this is my house. And he kind of laughs and he's like, your house. And I was like, oh, wait, this is a metaphor. (laughs) And so I'd gone like this whole way and was like, I had to pause it and was like, oh, shit. Okay, so that's... That's uh, Adam and Eve. That's the brothers. This is a metaphor. I was, <laughs> so I was like, I wrote down, this is embarrassing that it's 20 minutes left and I'm just now getting the main metaphor figured. So, Some people never got it. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I also thought that it was, uh, it was a metaphor for creativity or celebrity or being in the public eye because mm-hmm. Javier could Bardem could only be this public face. Like he's never really like himself. He's only he's like a slave to what the public wants, and he says that he doesn't like it, but he seems to really actually like it. So I'm like, he ooh, is this? Likes it, yeah. yeah, I was like, is this how Aronofsky feels, or is he condemning people that he knows that feels this way? Of these, you know, because I don't think it's a it's a, too far of a stretch to say that oh, it's a it's a poet, so it's a writer, and he happens to be a writer. I mean, I think any time that you write something and you put a writer in it, that's not usually too off, too far off from yourself. Right, or it right. Has to, it has to have, like, some bit of yourself in there, at least. And so I think that that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. I like that she's, um, they refer to her a few times as inspiration or his muse, 
So I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, maybe this is just a metaphor for creativity, and this is, and she's his muse, and it has to be destroyed and reborn, and and I'm like, holy shit, this this movie has a lot going on. Was the last thing that I wrote down. Oh, tons, and you know the fact that they were a, a couple while they made this movie. Yeah, that's really strange I mean, to that me. Makes it even weirder. Plus the fact that they were a couple, it just seems like that's, yeah, that's bizarre right there. Well, yeah, it is. It is like uh, art. Art becoming life <laughs> because, like, right. you know, he's he's a bit older than she is, right? So it's a little bit like the on-screen couple there. So, so yeah. Um, what did you think about the the crystal that we have toward the beginning? And he doesn't want to let anybody in that room. And Michelle Pfeiffer keeps wanting to go in there. And and how long yeah. did it take you to figure that thing out? It. Uh... <laughs> You know, I got to be honest, until you just mentioned it, I kind of forgot about that. Oh, okay, that. okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, Yeah, and that's kind of a big, especially early on, that's like a big deal. Like, that's the big forbidden thing. Oh, it's the MacGuffin that, the, you know, it's like they, they can't go in that room, and then right. they definitely can't mess with this very valuable thing that they all want, and or that they all want to see, and then it breaks, and it's like, oh, no, that's going to be his... Like, you know, because at this point, I like I said, I hadn't figured out the Adam and Eve stuff. So I'm like, oh, maybe that's how he keeps this world uh, the way that it is. And maybe she's just a construct of his or something. You know, I, I was going much more sci-fi instead of uh, right. fantasy. And so, and so what, that breaks and, he, and he, he's like, oh, yeah, because remember that breaks and he's uh, he's like grinding it up in his hands and his hands are bleeding all over it. And he puts a lamp in there. And he like boards it up, and I'm like, "What the hell is this?" So I thought it was, he was trying to like grow it back or something. Did he know. have a new one at the end of the movie? I can't remember. Well, Did yeah, because at the end, uh, Jennifer Lawrence he takes it from her because that's her love, and it's in that crystal form. That's right. And he puts it back on the shelf, and so then he has a new one. That's right. And because at the beginning, Michelle Pfeiffer was like, "Oh, it's beautiful." Did Did you give him that? And she says, "No." And she's kind of shitty about it. Mm -hmm. And so she knows that someone else gave him that thing. Right, and it'll go on and on. And yeah. I mean, we should mention that they never really leave the house the whole... I mean, the whole movie takes place in this house. Mm -hmm. Literally. Like, wherever all these people are coming from, you have no idea. It's all... Oh, and then I think the the most horrific shot for me... I mean, besides the whole baby thing, I mean, I just... <laughs> it's <laughs> off of baby me. Yeah, because this is this is my own anxieties is um she looks out into the sort of like the field and sees all these flashlights and all these people mm -hmm. lining up and I'm like oh no get out of their house she just finished it you know and I'm, four. yeah I'm just imagining all of my wife's friends just coming over and messing around in the basement I'm like no I just messed with this leave me alone oh, it's it just builds and builds and he he you know he's working on these poems it's quote unquote published but you never see how you know, it's, you know, they're just there all of a sudden, and she, like, never even saw it, and so well, he's instantly, it all happens, yeah, boom. that's strange, too, because he says, he writes it, and he's all inspired, and he's running around naked, and he lets her read it, and she says it's beautiful, and she cries, and then the phone rings right away, and it's his mm -hmm. publicist, and he's like, oh, they love it, and she's like, you let other people read it? And he's like, well, yeah. And so then I was like, God, what is going on? <laughs> like, what is happening? Because, you know, he's, 
other people are reading this thing that he obviously didn't send to them because there's no, you know, there's no uh, leaving the scene. There's no, it's not like there's any email or anything in this movie or something. And so it was just all of these things happening with no, you don't see any of them happen, kind of. Uh, and so right, then yeah, I was like, just, oh, okay, this is some mystical thing. And then that's when it's, you know, obviously the word of God or the Bible or something, yeah, yeah. you know, that calls out. And then the, the followers come and. Yep. And he starts putting like the, some sort of grease on their face or some sort of paint that's very similar to like the, you know, the body of Christ and the, the X and the Ash Wednesday and the whole, you know, the whole religious business. Mm-hmm. Um, like the whole rituals. And then he has different disciples that are putting on the mud on people's faces instead of him doing it. And I'm like, Oh, I gotcha. I get where this is going. Um, I also, you know, looking back on it, I wonder, I wonder about some things like she sees this empty wall and it's got some paint on it and she puts a streak of kind of like a tan on it. And right. She's, and she's kind of painting. And then she puts a darker yellow on there and she looks at it and I'm like, well, I don't know what this, this means at all. And so it's one of those where it's like, not everything is, is something, you know? I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Some, some of it's just weird or tension or yeah. Yeah. Just, I don't, I don't think you can break it apart. Like this symbolizes specifically this religious allegory. Sure. And we have the, um, we have the visual of, it looks like how she's connected to the house and we get the house's like heartbeat or something. Right, right. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I was like, I don't, I'm not understanding this at all because it kept seeming like it was, it was dying and then it was dying more and then it was dying more. And I was like, I don't know that I get this thing. I don't know that I get this part. Uh, so there was things like that where, you know, she goes into the furnace at one point, which by the way, Michelle Pfeiffer just dragging her clothes out of the washer. Ooh, come on. <sighs> How bad is that? It's like, no, you can't do that. It's also, you know, I mean, this brings me back to like, like we were talking about, you know, the, the nails under the, the nails under the fingernails. That stuff really upset me because it's so believable. That's not exaggerated. That's oh, yeah. not, you can't say like, oh, I mean, a, a baby eating is pretty extreme and, you know, crouch <laughs> shooting up your house, but people doing that little stuff, it's like, ah, oh, somebody, I could picture somebody doing that and it would just drive you insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just having no self-awareness or just not caring about what other people think. That's, that's such a big issue for me, uh, to where I'm like, no, you can't just do this. Like ask for permission. Like don't just do something, especially in someone else's house. Exactly. Oh my God. Don't they start redecorating her house? Oh, well, yes. And so they, yes. Some of the first people that come over for that, that funeral, they start repainting and they start trying to go have sex in her room and stuff. Yeah. And she's like, no, this is our room. And the guy laughs and he goes, our room. He's like, okay. And I was like, wait a minute. What does that mean? (laughs) You know, it's like, I just was, I think about 20 minutes on, like once Ed Harris shows up, I just was like, well, what does this mean? What is this? (laughs) What is this about? (laughs) And I was just like a little kid that just had all of these questions and just was, um, struggling for everything the good the good news is is like i said with it being aronofsky i was loving the fact that i had all these questions it wasn't like a frustrating like well this doesn't make sense this is poor filmmaking you know it wasn't anything like this was poorly made it was just like okay he's going for something let me see if i can figure it out right yeah it's like you know what is the old saying is like you know 
you know, a, a, I don't know if it's a poor movie or a good movie gives you answers, but a great movie leaves you with questions. And I mean, th- yeah, there's a difference between just a half-assed movie that doesn't bother caring about anything. But, you know, this, I mean, after seeing this movie, I couldn't wait to talk to people about this movie. Yeah. It, was, it was that kind of movie. Yeah. So, yeah, so we have the end. We have, uh, you know, she turns against her God and and does what is best for her and um you know and and we have other allegories like i didn't mention about how she if she's like mother nature you have the regular people sort of tearing her apart like i said when they're beating her up and it's mm-hmm. you know like people like with whole with all the climate change stuff about tearing the world apart and mother nature right. apart and um and so she basically fights back and and he takes her love and, and is basically going to start anew so I don't know. I was really taken by the movie. I was, I really enjoyed it. I'm, I am, uh, my wife does like these kinds of movies. Like we had, nice. we had a movie, um, and it's, it's different, but it, it is definitely a discussion piece. We watched, uh, twice. We watched the movie Antichrist by no, Lars von Trier. I haven't seen that one. I've, I took my wife on a date once to see Breaking the Waves when we were still dating. <laughs> Oh, Lars von Trier, he's got a, he's a discussion point, that's for that's sure. That's a rough, that's a rough ride. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen Antichrist though. I gotta admit, I'm a little nervous about some of the visuals that I've read about in that movie. Yeah, there's, there's the one point, um, where a, a fox speaks and he's, the fox says chaos reigns. And if you can get, if you're okay with that bit, then the rest of the movie I think is worth watching. Like if you okay. if you watch that and you're like, no, nah, it's too silly. I I don't know if I can do that. Um, but no, that's that's quite a movie. And, Aronofsky, uh, he's yeah. something else. Yeah. <laughs> Darren Aronofsky, he's quite the I'm guy. I'm sorry, I mean Lars. No, I know, I knew what you meant. Both, yeah, they're both they're both yeah. uh, provocative. And then one of the other movies that is a very different movie, but also left me wanting to talk and. And waiting to speak on it is uh, the Alex Garland film Annihilation from earlier this year. We just watched that. Oh, did you? What did you and think I, of it? I, I, um, you know, I was. It didn't quite. It wasn't quite everything I kind of hoped it would be. I don't know. The ending left me a little bit flat for some reason. Maybe I don't know why. But I thought it was really good, and I thought the scene and just the creature. I mean, it's oh, weird. Yes. Where a monster really is genuinely scary, but that bear creature. Yes. <laughs> it is, that's, uh, that scene when it was walking around and sort of half talking. Oh. I mean, I've, I've described like, there's certain movies like I watched, uh, Inland Empire, mm-hmm. Lynch's Inland Empire, mm-hmm. and, which is a strange, long, Baffling. sometimes boring ride, but <laughs> there are moments in that when I felt I was like riding a roller coaster of like fear. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was great. I was like having so much fun, just like whoa! And that bear creature, I just I was having so much fun being genuinely like scared and unnerved by something. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I really enjoyed Annihilation. I thought it was, and I, I have the script of it also um, at the house, and so it's been really interesting for me because I think Alex Garland is a guy that. Boy, he may swing and miss sometimes, but he's gonna—he's trying for that home run every time. Right. Well, I love Dex Machina. I thought that was great. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that as well. But he also, you know, he—he 
he wrote the I believe the book The Beach that they adapted. Oh, that's right. God, that's going back a ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then of course he worked with Danny Boyle for Sunshine and Twenty Eight Days Later. Mm-hmm. And so I oh, think yeah, yeah. I, I think Sunshine is a big swing and a miss for the old third act. Like I think the first two acts are great. I agree. Yeah, and, and then, then it becomes the end, like slasher yeah. movie, and yeah, it becomes a uh, Event Horizon sort of the towards right, the right, end. right, right. And so this one, I was like, oh yeah. So Alex Garland, uh, you know, second movie directed, and I loved Ex Machina as well. I thought that, uh, you know, there was parts where I was like, eh, I don't know if I love love this part, but um, yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed. I think the thing that made me think of that was talking about a movie that uh, raises questions. And I, li- I like the fact that it doesn't spell everything out. You know, it, it does, it, it gives you a pretty good sense, but it's kind of like how Ex Machina gives you a pretty good sense of things, but it doesn't, it doesn't straight out say things at the end. So. Right. And I would, yeah, I'd be willing to give Annihilation another look. I mean, just cause there's a lot there. And, you know, I, and, and I'm, I'm not the first guy to say this or first critic to say this, but you know, people were saying, you know, like the female Ghostbusters or Ocean's 8. I mean, they kind of got poo-pooed by a lot of critics. And, uh, you know, this is a movie which has virtually an all-female cast. And all the main characters are female. And they're all smart, tough, interesting, you know, each interesting, fully realized characters. I wish this had gotten more attention. as like, hey, here's a movie with, you know, an all-female leads. And look at this. You know, and it traditionally, like... You know, tough badasses go into a weird science fiction realm and try and fight the monsters. Yeah, and it's so weird seeing Tessa Thompson playing such a different character from right. from Westworld and from Thor. And from Thor, yeah. <laughs> it's like wow. So she's she's one definitely that was kind of eye opening to where she's got a lot of range. And definitely. I, and I thought you know going into it like I've read uh, Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, so I was like okay, I sort of knew what I was getting into. Um. But I was really surprised at how much I bought Natalie Portman as like an ex-army person. Mm-hmm. I think it was like the it's the alligator sequence where she's on the knee and she's she's firing her gun to where I was like, whoa, she's got like an intense, dark look that she can pull off really well that I didn't really give her credit for, I guess. Yeah. And that's Jennifer a good Jason Lee too. Jennifer Jason Lee is good in it. She's all um, Jennifer Jason Leigh's having like a real kind of career renaissance in a way. I think. Well, she's yeah. she's definitely underthought of when it comes to you know, the main the mainstream. She's great. She was you know she was really good in um, Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. And this is going way back, but you know, a movie I was always liked her in is um, Miami Blues. You ever seen that? No, no, I haven't seen that. It's really good. It's her. It's essentially a three person cast. I mean, the other people, but it's it's her. It's a young Alec Baldwin. Like, it's sort of the peak of his just stud Alec Baldwin thing. <laughs> yeah. And Fred Ward. Okay. And it's Alec Baldwin plays this really flaky criminal who winds up uh, with Jennifer Jason Lee, who plays this prostitute who's saying she's saving up to buy, is it like a pie shop or something? She has, she's like a really sweet, innocent woman, and she just like, she can't see how bad Alec Baldwin really is, like how he's just using her. And then Fred Ward plays this cop who's after Alec Baldwin because he stole his badge. Hmm. And it's a dark comedy. It's it's really good. It's um, who directed it? It's whoever directed Gross Point Blank directed it. But. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know that name off the top of my head, but I know the I know that person. Yeah, it came out in 1990, and it's um George Armitage. 
Okay. Highly recommend. It's really good. Alec Baldwin was like insanely charismatic in this. Fred Ward's great, and Jennifer Jason Lee is like the perfect blend between them. And tell me the name of that again. It's uh, Miami Blues. Miami Blues. All right, it is on my Netflix queue. Yeah, I, I think you will like. It's it's uh it's it's got the ending, <laughs> it's violent, but uh the ending is is wild. <laughs> what happens mm. out Baldwin? But I won't say anymore. Interesting. Oh, there it is, Miami Blues. Okay, got it on there. All right. Well, what else? Uh, do you have anything else about Mother that we haven't mentioned, or anything that you wanted to bring up before uh, we close this one out? I don't think so. I mean, I guess I would say if what we've said sounds interesting, by all means watch it because we haven't even covered how interesting and different this movie is. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've seen a lot of weird movies. I've never seen one quite like this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're checking out. Yeah. It, it's unentertaining. It's, you know, it's, it's an interesting watch. You won't be bored. I don't think. No, I would, I would be real surprised if you said that you were bored after watching this movie. <laughs> Let's see. Well, what else does he have coming up? Because Mother is his most recent film from last year. He's He is a guy that we've mentioned does like to take his time between credits. I don't... Hmm, I don't see anything on IMDb that he's working on here. No, he's... Yeah, I don't see... Nothing for director, which would be... Where is it? Nothing more exciting than reading IMDb. What do we have? Um... No, I'm not seeing it. Mother's the last thing, so. All right, let's see. It looks like upcoming project. He's got uh, 2019. It says Untitled Artificial Intelligence Courtroom Project. <laughs> I like that. I wish they would stick with that title. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. It was, uh, ooh, this will be interesting because it is not written by him. Oh, really? Yeah, it is written by Joe Epstein, who did The Transition, and that's his only other credit. So, hmm. so there's hope for everyone out there. You can get a uh, you can get a Darren Aronofsky directed film by only having one credit before. There you go. You know he didn't write the wrestler, so you know he. Can yeah, work. I guess I guess that's true. I guess he didn't. I'm not do sure he'll have a hand in shaping the movie. Oh yeah, I would imagine so. Would well, imagine. he's he's one of those guys. I'll go see whatever he does because it's even you know good, bad, or not. It's it's never not interesting. Yeah, and he's. You know, I would imagine that the courtroom drama has got to be something to do with obsession, math, or religion. <laughs> I'm thinking so. And I mean, I hear, I hear like courtroom drama. I want to see Darinovsky do a courtroom drama now. Yeah, I kind of want to see him. See what he does with it. Yeah, I would, you know, and I and I know that this is easy for me to say because of being a comic book person, but I would have loved to see him do something in that just to be able to do it the way that he wants to do it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like he, it's like it's a few years late. Um, if he was able to do some of the projects he was r- rumored to be around back s- before it sort of became such a huge industry, uh, right? That would have been interesting because now it's it, everything's got to be kind of cookie cutter. I feel like, right? And he was at one point. Wasn't he going to do a year one Batman year one? Yeah, I think it was Batman year one, and he was also attached to Wolverine for a while. Yeah, those. Are, I mean, I'd love to see him do a Batman year one because I think his concept. I, I may be wrong, but was it was like Batman? He wasn't rich, you know. He was kind of more cobbling it all together or something and god i just god i mean i just imagine a movie like you know something like requiem for a dream that visual craziness mm-hmm. applied to a superhero movie and 
Well, and he would have the obsession thing down pretty easy. Oh, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty much right there. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I don't think it's going to end up happening though. Yeah, I think you're right. I think now it's such a huge industry that, I mean, that, you know, they'll let, well, they formerly would let somebody like James Gunn do, you know, Guardians. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of quirky, but yeah, it's hard to imagine somebody really going nuts with it. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of TV directors where the writers, the sort of one in charge and, they're like, here's what, here's exactly what you're doing, and we'll have the studio heads watching as you do it, and mm-hmm. and you know get uh, some nice action in there from the Russo brothers or James Wan or whoever, and and uh, you know that'll be kind of it. It'll be maybe stylized, but not real personal. No, maybe, exactly. And I mean, I'm you know I'm not going to pretend I don't enjoy the Marvel movies. Oh yeah. yeah, be something. It'd be nice to see something a little more crazy, mm-hmm. like. Have you ever seen, um, just real quick, have you ever seen Super by uh, James Gunn, his superhero movie? No, I haven't. That's the one with Rain Wilson, right? Rain Wilson and uh, Ellen Page. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a personal movie. <laughs> I have not seen that. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting to kind of look at that. I mean, there's the, that whole news recently is pretty ridiculous. I think. But, I agree. Yeah. Um, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I know Disney's a huge corporation and they protect their interests, but it it seems like they were being played on this one pretty obviously. And, yeah, you gotta you gotta protect yourself and and what you say everywhere all the time now. Exactly now because it's it's always there, just waiting to come back and and bite you. That's right. All right, so thank you once again, Mister Piper, oh, for coming on. More than welcome. I love this. This is great. Yes, we got to we got to t- discuss one of your favorites last time, and then the beginning and the uh, the most current release from Mister Aronofsky this time. If people have any comments, suggestions, or movies or directors that you'd like to hear us talk about, you could email us at plainlabelpodcast at gmail You could follow the show over at Twitter. The show's handle is at plainlabelpod. You could follow me over there. I'm at Eric Williams seventy nine. We also have a Facebook page and an Instagram account. Just search for Plain Label Podcast, and you'll find us over there. If you wanted to help us out a little bit, you could check out our show notes. You're going to find our link to our Amazon wish list and our Audible link where you could get The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which is what Jennifer Lawrence could have used uh, <laughs> yes. in, in her film, or what Max could have used. You know, um, So you could get that for free just by signing up. So... Once again, I want to thank Mr. Pfeiffer for coming on. If people wanted to hear more from you or get in touch with you, where could they do that? Um, I'm on Facebook under Will Pfeiffer, and I'm on Twitter at Will Pfeiffer. W-I-L-L-P-F-E-I-F-E-R. <laughs> the pleasures of having a, a not a tra- not a super traditional sounding name, right? Exactly. It's yeah. There there are other Will Pfeiffers out there, though, which is why my website is not WillPfeiffer.com. There's some attorney in Georgia, I think, that has. Oh, how dare he! Well, if you look up if you look up Eric Williams, it's a different spelling. But I was a I was a pro bowler for the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, uh, I was a center. Nice. I was a center for uh, the for the Boston Celtics. Let's see. I was uh, I was a sound designer for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, there's lots of me out there. I'll bet there. Are. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> Eric Williams. There was there was four of them at the University of Nebraska Lincoln when I graduated. Really? Oh, yeah. I used to get a bunch of emails saying, hey, you're in my lab, blah, blah, blah. No, that's somebody else. (laughs) That's not me. Sorry about it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for listening. And Rachel and I are going to be back next week with our new theme. Why does the sun go on shining? Why does the sea rush to shore?
Don't they know it's the end of the world if you don't love me anymore? Why do the birds go on singing? Why do the stars glow above? Don't they know it's the end of the world? It ended when I lost your love.